Everybody has his own favorite, but my favorite is always the tomatoes in summer. You take it fine and put it on the barbecue. A warm tomato is the most tasty, but very good for your health. Welcome to The Science Behind Your Salad, a brand new podcast series brought to you by BASF. I'm Jane Craigie. I'm an agriculturalist, a traveler and a marketer. I've been a freelance writer for over 20 years, and I'm deeply involved with the International Federation of Agricultural Journalists. So Jane, what's your favourite way to eat tomatoes? That's the voice of Martin. And we've also got Anna here, his fellow producer. Why don't you go first, Martin? You tell me and I'll have a think about it. Well, I like something called panzanella, which is ripe old tomatoes that are probably past their best sometimes. Uh, A load of basil, some roasted pepper, some onions, some garlic, and you roast it all up in a a baking tray with some stale bread. And it's really sweet and it's juicy. And yeah, I love it. Anna, what do you think? Throughout lockdown one, I practically lived on bruschetta. I previously would have eaten a tomato sandwich, but um, I discovered bruschetta because to make it, to make the tomatoes taste even better, you just add a load of stuff and stick it on toast. I don't know, I don't know whether any Italians would have a problem with me calling that bruschetta, but I chop up lots of um, tomatoes with onion, loads of olive oil, olives, and loads of coriander, and it was just delicious. And I had it every day during lockdown because it's easy and it just uses up the contents of my fridge. It was delicious. And Jane, what do you think then? I love the sound of yours. I was going to change my mind, but I'm going to stick to my guns. And I think my favourite is a Greek salad. I was I was just thinking maybe, maybe Greek salad is embedded in my DNA. Yeah, I was born in Cyprus and lived there till I was about three years old. And I spoke Greek before I spoke English. So fresh tomatoes, lots of olive oil, the saltiness of feta and olives, and preferably sitting in a taverna with a glass of wine in my hands. Um, that would be, yeah, that would be my, my go-to for tomatoes. In this series, I'm going to take you with me as I tour the globe. I'm going to be searching the world for the ingredients to make the perfect salad. In this, our first episode, we're talking tomatoes. When they're eaten fresh from the vine, they're really the taste of summer. But any time of the year, they're an essential addition to almost any dish. In salad, I love tomato in salad, like uh, Greek salad or also with mozzarella. I eat them in the morning with hummus on my sandwich and then with mozzarella, yeah. India, I think there's no dish which is complete without tomatoes, yeah? Uh, We put tomato in everything. A good cheese and tomato sandwich. Good bit of homemade bread, lovely bit of Lancashire cheese, buying tomatoes. My partner, uh, he is a farmer. He said that one of his favorite dishes was moussaka. I'd never eaten it before. Uh, It is the ultimate comfort food that just makes you feel at home whenever you eat it. What I really like is creating my own pasta sauce with tomato, pepper, onion, spices and herbs. It's nice making it and it's even nicer to enjoy the pasta dish with tomato with the family. But we're not just telling the stories that celebrate the food that we prepare and eat. We'll meet the scientists searching for the next incredible breakthroughs 
helping the world to grow healthy and flavour-filled foods for our plates. We'll be exploring the new technologies revolutionising the way farmers use plant varieties, satellite positioning data and growing systems. You see, it's a matter of science, lad. Come here, I'll show you. And we'll meet the farmers, those pioneers working to do one of the biggest jobs on Earth, supplying a huge diversity of foods 365 days a year in the face of huge challenges. I'm proud to be a farmer and produce food for my family and, and many others. And just knowing that we're part of an industry that is ever-changing, to me, is no better industry to be involved in. Although we think of tomatoes as red, they come in all shapes, sizes and colours. And depending on where you live in the world, you'll have your own preferences for flavour and style. In Britain, where I live, we love small, very sweet tomatoes. In Spain and Greece, it's the larger, more acidic fruits which hold favour. But before we get into the history of the crop, and we'll be tracing the origins of the crop later in the podcast, I had heard rumours of something called the intense tomato. And what's so special about this tomato, you might ask? It may sound like a minor problem, but we've all been there. Tomatoes in the sandwich have a tendency to turn the bread to mush and to go all soggy. So my first stop on my virtual tour is to Bologna, where I live in northeast Scotland isn't the best place to grow tomatoes, unlike northern Italy. Coming up is Franco Vecchio. Well, use it uh, with mozzarella in slice. He's a tomato breeder. put olive oil and salt on it. It doesn't go everywhere in the plate. This simplistic <laughs> term for what he does belies the complexity of his job. Franco's role is to find ways to improve the tomato, to meet consumer and retailer demands for an array of characteristics. The requirement could be improving the flavour or the shelf life or making the fruit more attractive, or it could be improving the growing crop's resistance to disease. The intense tomato is a variety that he has helped develop. It has been created by a process called hybridisation, which utilises the desired attributes of two plant parents and combines them to make one offspring with the attributes of both. Here's Franco to tell us more. The intense tomato is mainly came from observations. The real origin is a mutation. In nature, very often uh, happen mutation in, in every kind of plant or animals, in, in men as well. This is the key of the evolution. Once, uh, many years ago, in the field, I observed this kind of mutation in, in a variety of tomato, in a commercial variety of tomato. Uh, we use in processing. We observed that uh, one plant had the fruit showing this trait, so no leaking. The intense tomato is the holy grail, a tomato that doesn't make your sandwich soggy. We saw the mutation and then uh, uh, I tasted it, uh, of course. <laughs> I tried to use it, so and then the, the step was, well, this is interesting because we uh, there are some needs that a normal tomato is not able to fit very well. The fruit was ugly at the beginning. It was a very ugly old variety. Then the point was to understand, well, wow, beautiful, what can we do with that? The second step was, <laughs> let's transpose the, the trait in a good-looking tomato. So through crosses, selection, etc., we back-crossed this into a regular tomato with a better size, shape, etc., and so we can start studying it. 
the first point was to understand what happened. Can we reproduce in the progenies the trait or is just something that you lose? What Franco is describing is hybridization. So I asked him how this works in practice. Technically, you, you have to choose one plant that will be the female, one plant will be the male. Tomato normally is a self-pollinating crop. When the flower is opening, it's already pollinized. So if you want to do a hybrid, then you have to work a little bit on flowers. So we, we, we select the, the female flowers, and from the female flowers, we have to remove the, the male part. So we don't want this flower to produce pollen. We keep the other plant as male, so we harvest the pollen from it manually. With this pollen, we go to pollinate the female flower. That it is enough to put grains of pollen on the end of the stylus. And then the ovario, that is at the end, is, will be the tomato that we eat, is pollinized, and then uh, seeds are coming, the fruit is uh, becoming uh, mature and grows, etc. And then you harvest the seeds, and then you have, let's say, the new base for the crop. Those seeds are the hybrid seeds. The intense tomato also reduces waste by lasting longer. This is a way also to have a better shelf life. So not losing so much water, not losing water at all, let's say. Uh, you can keep the fruits for more time. Like me, Franco loves the tomato in a good Greek salad. Well, I love it very much with uh, feta, olive, uh, because you cut it in pieces and the pieces stay. So you can, you can really, really taste when you eat the salad. I had a delivery of a box of intense tomatoes yesterday and uh, they are beautifully fresh red colour and um, I've got three in front of me now on a chopping board so I'm just into them. So it is relatively dry, so perfect for making a sandwich and so that your bread doesn't get soggy. I'm just going to cut a little piece off and have a taste. Mmm, that is really good. It's got a rich flavour, fresh, um, quite savoury, and absolutely perfect for either a sandwich or a salad. That is a beautiful tomato. It's a great example of innovative technology that can meet the needs of the market and also reduce food waste. Tomatoes may look simple and may be easily found all over the world, but the science that goes into the mighty tomato is not only groundbreaking, it's also vital for producing abundant, healthy crops for feeding the world's growing population. And tomatoes are worth their weight in gold. Why? Well, if you compare the weight of an ingot of gold with the equivalent weight of tomato seed, pound for pound, the tomato seeds are actually more valuable. The price of gold is around 30,000 uh, euros a kilo. Tasty tom seeds are 10 times more expensive than a gold, around 300,000 euros. Then you have a lot of seeds, I can tell you, but they are very expensive. But let's start with a bit of history. The tomato wasn't always the shiny round orb that we know today. Its story begins in South America, thousands of years ago, as an unrecognisable hairy piece of fruit. They were pretty ugly, and so it's no surprise that nobody wanted to taste them. But how exactly did it become one of the world's most celebrated crops? 
To find out more, I spoke to Sarah Burr. Sarah's a food writer, a chef, and an all-round culinary gem. Tomatoes originated in Mesoamerica. So Peru, Ecuador, that area is where you would have found wild tomatoes. And they were the people who domesticated tomatoes initially. The first European connection with tomatoes came with the famous early explorers like Columbus. It was allegedly Hernan Cortes, one of the Spanish conquistadors, who believed that the plant could grow in Spanish climates and across the rest of Europe. However, the tomato wasn't an instant success here in Britain, and it took time to become the global staple food that it is today. In fact, the Brits thought that it was poisonous and unfit to eat until around the middle of the 18th century. According to the Smithsonian Institute, tomatoes were even known as poisoned apples, mainly because members of the upper classes kept dying after eating them. The reality was the acidity in the tomatoes was reacting with the lead in the pewter plates that they were using, and this was causing lead poisoning. There's one story about tomatoes being introduced at a, a large state fair exposition in America in the late 1800s, and somebody tasted one and, and he did not faint, and that was supposed to be the proof that they were... <laughs> They were appealing. So people were suspicious of them. It wasn't until they were embraced in continental Europe that it became a little less uncommon. One of the big things that changed that was they stand up well to canning. And in a lot of ways, they transform under canning because they become the, the quick, easy base for lots of soups and sauces. There's so many tomato varieties, all of which were bred to be appealing and in, in flavor and the way they look and their ability to, to hold up or their ability to produce. A man named Alexander Livingston, he was a plant breeder and he was from Ohio, here where I live. So what Alexander Livingston did was breed tomatoes that were larger and smooth. He was really proud of the whole smoothness thing. He introduced a, a hybrid tomato called the Paragon in 1870, and he called it the first perfectly and uniformly smooth tomato ever introduced to the American public. And he eventually started introducing other tomatoes. So there is still a Livingston Seed Company, and you can order Livingston's initial seeds. So they're what we call heirloom tomatoes. So his heirloom seeds are still grown today. Today, tomatoes are grown commercially in vast quantities all around the world. In fact, more than 60 million tonnes of tomatoes are produced every year. There are around 10,000 varieties of tomatoes grown worldwide, and the crop is grown under a whole range of different conditions and in lots of different climates. They grow in rows, in fields, in glasshouses and in polytunnels, and they are hugely popular with home gardeners. A short hop across the English Channel from me is one of the global centres for tomato production, the Netherlands. The country is a renowned centre for food innovation and technology and grows and exports a lot of tomatoes. Dr Jan Vandenberg is a Dutchman and a professor of Maastricht University's Faculty of Science and Engineering. He's also a vegetable seed expert. What Jan doesn't know about growing commercial fruits and vegetables probably isn't worth knowing. Jan's latest project is in Venlo at the Breitlands campus in the Dutch state of Limburg. Limburg is an important horticultural growing area and a logistics hub for supplying northern Europe. It also plays a vital role in the tomato of the future. 
In normal times, I would just hop on a plane and head down to visit Jan, but obviously I can't do that during the global pandemic. Brightlands is a public-private collaboration designed to promote innovation and research. We'll talk about the work being done at Brightlands later in the episode, but first I wanted to find out more about the market for tomatoes. I asked Jan just how popular and valuable the tomato is. The latest report I read was from 2020, and in 2018 it was $190 billion. And that's at the consumer level. About a quarter of the market is processing, and about 75% is, is fresh. And that's worldwide, huh? because here in Northwestern Europe, we have no market for growing processing tomatoes. So here in Holland, it's all fresh market, but worldwide, it's about 25, 75%. The tomato market is fragmented. I mean, there are many different markets. You have the processing market, and that, that's, that's the tomato paste or the ketchup or the stuff that goes onto your pizzas. And then you have the fresh market, so that's the broad market differentiation. But then within the fresh ones, you have uh, uh, different sizes, you have different colors, and also for different markets, uh, you have different types of tomatoes. In China, for example, people want pink tomatoes, so that's that's distinctly different color again. So that's why there are so many different types and so many different uh, varieties. And if you're really a connoisseur of tomatoes, I would encourage you to go to, to Spain or to Italy, you know, it's almost like champagne. I mean, if you grow certain tomatoes on, on high saline soils, you will get a special flavor. And that's the type of thing we also would like to find out how to get these things in our greenhouses. How, you know, how does that work? Here in Northwestern Europe, it's really top sport. In India, for example, almost all of the fresh tomatoes are grown in the field. Whereas here in, in Holland, of course, everything is from a greenhouse. You need to make sure that the stem which in the end is something like 13 meters long. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> it's not going 30 meters high, but actually it's, it's, it's laying on the floor, so to speak. You have to make sure that there's nothing wrong going wrong with that stem, because if it's damaged, of course, you have a problem in the plant. You need to get the economics of your operations, you have to get correct, eh? because the labor uh, cost is very high. Um, but also other input trades like uh, energy and so forth. So you have to make sure that your energy cost is not too high. So a lot of greenhouses go these days to use uh, warmth from the earth. You know, different types of greenhouse uh, are being uh, erected. So yes, I mean, here in Northern Europe, it's really, really top sport. We'll hear more from Jan later in this episode. Staying in the Netherlands, we're now heading to Bacon Donk. This is the home of the Tasty Tom Tomato, which is the brainchild of Ton Janssen. In 1995, he was looking for the perfect tomato. He wanted one that he could grow all year round, that could give a sweet and juicy fruit. Having sampled over 20 different varieties, Ton discovered a tomato with a deep red colour and a very sweet taste. And so the Tasty Tom brand was born. Here's Ton to tell us more. You start with the, with the seed, of course. And then uh, after a week, you can see the starting of a very small, small, small uh, plant. Then uh, it will grow. And what's very important in the beginning is that the plants have a lot of lighting. Because then they are, will be very strong. We have a special plant grower. When they are then about 30 uh, centimeters high, he will bring the plants to us and then we bring them in the greenhouse 
you can't grow tomatoes uh, outside in Holland because it's too cold. And nowadays, uh, we don't grow tomatoes in the, in the soil, but we do that on rock wool. Rock wool is made from uh, basalt uh, stones, and that's, that's why uh, you can grow tomatoes everywhere. That we give them water, with fertilizer, of course. One week later, when the plants are in the greenhouses, we have the first flowers, the first vine. Then we will put in the bumblebees in the greenhouse. Bumblebees, they will uh, do the pollination of the uh, flowers. In tomato uh, flowers is no nectar. That's why we do that with bumblebees, be, because bumblebees are only searching for the pollen. And they, there are a lot of uh, pollen in the tomato flowers, and a bumblebee will do one flower by a tomato grower, and then he is satisfied, and he says, okay, the rest of, of my life, I will work in this greenhouse because here is pollen enough and he will never go away. Even when the windows are open, he will not go. Eight weeks later, you, can, uh, ha you have the first vine. Eight to nine weeks later, there is a red tomato. The Tasty Tom is a popular tomato across Northern Europe. But tomatoes are grown all around the world in a variety of ways, and new technology is playing a vital role in keeping farmers ahead of the game. Smartphone and downloadable apps have revolutionised tomato growing. With these simple technologies, farmers can access some of the best agricultural advice from the palm of their hand. There are two really interesting projects currently undergoing trials in two different regions. One is called Aggenie, which is being used in India, and the other used in North Africa is Ardenna. These are two apps designed for farmers who are operating on a smaller scale than Ton Janssen in the Netherlands. To find out more about how these apps are being used by growers, I decided to explore the tomato-related challenges facing smallholders. So to my next stop, India, a vibrant, tomato-loving food nation, which I hold very dear, having spent three years living in Delhi as a child. Viral Makwana works with the digital team for BASF based in Mumbai. He explained how Aggenie could help tomato growers across the Indian continent. It's the genie of agriculture, right? It's a genie for the farmers where he uh, provides farmers all the alerts and actions which are required in his field. It helps farmer to do farming as per the best practices. Uh, so that's what Aggenie is about. The app is very simple to use. Any farmer can easily download the app. The registration process is also very simple. He just has to enter his mobile number. He gets an OTP, a one-time password on his phone, which he enters and then he registers himself. Now he has to tag his field, which again is a very simple process. On the phone, it automatically pick, picks up his GPS coordinates and then he has the option to either walk around the field with the phone in hand or he can just with his finger uh, touch on the map, the, the field boundaries and then you know he can just tag a field. After tagging the field, he has to enter a few basic details, yeah, basically which crop it is, 
what was the date of sowing and few other things you know whether it is drip irrigation or regular irrigation uh, what is the duration of his crop and once he adds this couple of details at the start he has to submit that field and from here the app in a way takes over and gives you everything that you are supposed to do right uh, from sowing till harvest the farmer in a way has just to wait for alerts to come so it it does provide uh, all the information to the farmer real time as per the local condition in his field right now whether it is a requirement of a fertilizer application or irrigation or disease or insect infection the app will tell him and it just doesn't stop at telling him what the, is the issue but it also gives the solution that what the farmer needs to do all this happens just on the phone the app basically gives hyper customized alert whatever alert he gets all he has to do is he has to put an input whether he's completed the action or not completed yeah so that the app gets information back whether the farmer has done that or not but that's the only thing which the farmer needs to do farmers in india are not the only ones benefiting from smartphone technology we're now going to shift continents to north africa in egypt the ardenna app is already helping farmers and agricultural retailers work together to combat disease outbreaks My name is Shaban Tal, and I come from the village of Banga El Sokar. Generally, our major problem is fungal blight, and most of the time, if the tomatoes get infected and are not handled correctly, this causes a complete loss of the crop. Tomato blight also causes the prices to drop very low, and then the farmers get into debt. Ardina sends us an alert that in the coming days a certain disease could occur and recommends a range of preventative measures. The service informs us about weather conditions and helps us by suggesting solutions before the damage happens. The message I received from the Ardina app provides precise details of the diseases. I can then go to my agricultural retailer and he can provide me with the crop protection products. that will help me protect my crops from the fungal diseases. Aldina minimizes the cost as I now spray less. I used to spray twice every 10 days and now I spray only once and the difference in overall production now is about 70% better than before. I've already told all my fellow farmers about this disease alert app. It's great to see that farmers all over the world are beginning to be able to access the latest data and technology. simply by using a smartphone it can make all the difference between crop success and crop failure with the knock-on impact on farmers livelihoods such simple innovations demonstrate how highly specific and well developed technologies can help farmers to walk the tightrope where one bad storm or a disease epidemic can devastate a year's crop production plant viruses present huge risks and when they get into a crop there's a real danger that the entire crop can be wiped out devastating a harvest not just for one year but often for multiple years so how do farmers keep one step ahead of such potential threats chemical means of control are one option but i'm keen to find out about another technology it is given a generic term which is biosolutions when i think of tomatoes i think of a crop that gets a lot of pests and diseases tomato spotted wilt virus tomato yellow leaf kill virus tobacco mosaic virus and that's only a few of the viruses that they get You have insects like white flies and thrips which can transmit these viruses and and aphids and lepidoptera and slugs and snails 
You have all sorts of fungal diseases like blight and fusarium wilt and phytophthora. So just about everything that wants to eat a crop usually attacks the tomato. Dr. Sean Barry from BASF is working on finding a naturally occurring biosolution to give farmers a wider range of tools to tackle the pathogens, viruses and fungi that attack their plants. When I think of the term biosolution, uh, I tend to think of things that are derived from living organisms or anything that's a living, naturally occurring substance. So you can have things like biofertilizers, biostimulants, biopesticides, or even something called macroorganisms, which are sort of the beneficial insects and the nematodes. And so it's a pretty broad category, bigger than what we, we tend to think of, but it's, it's generally anything that's derived from a living organism. So Seraphel, the active ingredient is a bacteria. It's called Bacillus somaloliquefaciens, MBR 600. It's quite a long name, so we don't tend to say the name very often. And it's a proudly UK success story. So this was a bacteria that was isolated in the UK by the University of Nottingham. And it's a typical Bacillus bacteria. It's a spore-forming, rod-shaped bacteria and has a lot of activity against a wide range of fungal and bacterial pathogens. It's a really highly concentrated biological fungicide. And if you want to think about uh, the numbers of spores in this product, it has about 275 billion spores per teaspoon. And that's what you're going to be spraying onto your, onto your plant to protect it against all sorts of diseases. So Seraphel is a bio-solution based on a naturally occurring bacteria that contains billions of spores. When it's sprayed onto a plant, the dormant spores begin to grow again and cover the plant. This creates a surface on which other organisms cannot grow. So it acts like a shield against pathogens that are trying to attack the plant. The feedback we've got so far from our particular farmers has been very good. It's our first global biofungicide and we have registration in more than 30 countries around the world. And they really, really like this type of technology because it really helps them with a lot of the problems that they have. Of course, in this episode, we haven't covered every single aspect of the technology and breeding behind the tomato and its place in keeping the world fed with the plumpest, juiciest, sweetest tasting fruits. But I hope that we've started the conversation. Our final stop is back with Dr. Jan Vandenberg to talk about the future of tomato innovations. 25 years or so ago, there was so much energy consumption in growing uh, tomatoes in, in greenhouses that these days that is technologies and that's it's developing to do this nearly uh, energy neutral and i think that is really really amazing to give you an idea i mean there's innovations in in glass or p parts of the greenhouse that you can use as solar panels in terms of breeding uh, i think we have made a tremendous progress in the sense of molecular breeding where we can use molecular markers to look also at the dna to help the breeders select new varieties so they select new varieties based on the external characteristics, but they can also look at the DNA. And I think those have been extremely important innovations. I consider the tomato growing or any plant growing very much an art as well as a science. But now more and more, uh, we're going into um, concepts of autonomous growth, where actually all the data of growing a tomato crop in a high-tech greenhouse is used um, by measuring all kinds of parameters with sensors in the greenhouse and in the plants, is being used to use artificial intelligence algorithms to predict what is the best management protocol for the crop. I think that is pretty, pretty amazing. 
What we intend to do on the campus is to really create an ecosystem, an ecosystem where we intend to innovate all the way from the genetics, through the growing, uh, through the processing, to retail, to the consumer. So a complete value chain representation, and both with a startup community, uh, some basic research from the university, so that the focus is on innovating between parts of the value chain rather than in each individual part of the value chain. And I think that's pretty unique what we're doing. Maastricht University is, is on the campus. There is work going on on uh, new food concepts and there's a food claim center. And right now, uh, Maastricht University is investing also in a future farming institute, so really to work on the future farming theme. And again, on vegetables, not only tomatoes, but uh, on all kinds of vegetables. I asked Jan to look into his crystal salad bowl and predict not only how tomatoes will be grown, but also what new tomato varieties we can expect to be eating in the coming decades. Well, the ones that are not far off are the, uh, the berry tomatoes. You know, that look like a blueberry, but they're red. Uh, so that's on its way. It's coming. So And maybe these will turn into raisins. Who knows? Because you also have sun-dried tomatoes. So that's, that's, that's not that far out. What is beyond that? We intend, again, there also in Brightlands, because there's also students around, especially young people, just bring them in and think with us in terms of what, what kind of uh, varieties we might be able to breed out of wild material. So the Institute is, is relatively new. I mean, we have the money together and we're establishing as we speak. And what we're going to do there is really concentrate on uh, consumer traits, traits such as taste, health, color, you know, uh, making sure that the vegetables are high quality when they reach the, the supermarket. I hope we can get the maximum quality to the consumer. I think there will always be a place for field-grown tomatoes because the, sea, the sun is shining for free, if, if not only for the processing ones, because there also the economics is quite different. I think those will remain predominantly into the field. And I think the fresh ones more and more into greenhouses and who knows, maybe someday also into city farm type growing environments. With an increasing urban population globally, city farms make sense, and there are plenty of examples in cities like New York. But what I've learned on my whistle-stop tour of the global tomato industry is that people love the food, and they're trying all that they can to make the best of the crop, whether it's improving the flavour, the shape, the colour, or the yield. The industry and its scientists are doing all that they can to reduce waste in the supply chain by using innovations like digital technology to grow more sustainably. And who knows what we might be eating in the future. The next big thing could be berry tomatoes the size of a blueberry, or it could be something completely different. One thing is for sure, scientists and farmers all over the world will continue to innovate to keep our stores and cupboards stocked with the delicious, safe produce that we have grown to love and expect. Until our next podcast, take time to enjoy your favourite tomato dish. While you're doing so, I hope that you might think about some of the fascinating people that we've heard from in this episode. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad, brought to you by BASF. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode.